hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 10.50 p.m. on Sunday, July 20th, 1969, in the U.S. state of Virginia. Tomorrow is your 13th birthday. How could you forget? Your mom has teased you for days now. My little girl's becoming a teenager. You glance over at her, dozing on the couch, the television flickering light and dark across her face like starlight. You're never allowed to stay up this late on a school night, much less parked in front of the TV. But tonight is special. Tonight, most of the nation and millions more around the world are glued to their TV screens. Tonight belongs to the men of Apollo 11 headed for the moon. Everyone with access to a television can at least imagine they're along for this epic ride. It's 10.56 now. New imagery flashes on the screen. The eagle has landed. The sky above the powdery white surface is pitch dark, but it all looks so tranquil. You watch as Neil Armstrong steps from the lunar module and onto the moon. Your scalp prickles when he says, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Your mom stirs just in time to give a little cheer before she heads to bed. For a moment, you are elated you feel that you could do something like walk on the moon someday too. Then you replay Armstrong's stirring words in your head. One small step for man, he said. A leap for mankind. That sinks in. You try to imagine what it must have been like to fly into space on this mission, to step out onto the surface of the moon and forever cement your place in history. The teachers in school don't exactly make you feel like you could do anything like this. The boys, sure. And you know you'll hear them talking excitedly tomorrow about their plans of becoming astronauts, just like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. But you, you'll be expected to smile and act like well, a girl, dreaming of becoming a mother, or a teacher, maybe a secretary. The boys are always told they can do anything. Why can't a girl be an astronaut too? As the awe-inspiring enormity of this human milestone sinks in, you feel a tug of ambition and a stab of hope that even as a young girl, you know will never go away. Why is it that only boys are promised the moon? You're determined to be an exception. You are going to be an astronaut when you grow up. Hey there, I'm Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. I haven't even introduced today's guest, but I'm already past 11 on my geekometer. I'm with Dr. Cyan Proctor, geoscientist, science communicator, and analog astronaut. 
We're going to talk about the untold story of the Mercury 13 program and the staggering gender and race gaps that prevail to the present day, not just in space exploration, but across the modern sciences. So strap yourself in and get ready for a new take on the familiar origin story of the professional astronaut anchored by the secret leading ladies of the space race. Three, two, one, ignition and liftoff. I've always wanted to say that. I am so excited about this topic, and I'm going to confess right now that I actually went out and pursued our guest today, Dr. Cyan Proctor, and basically begged her to join us on the podcast because I'm a huge uh, fan of space and um, admirer of everyone in, involved in its incredible possibilities for human advancement. Dr. Cyan Proctor is a geology, sustainability, and planetary science professor at South Mountain Community College in Phoenix, Arizona. She has a Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Science, a Master's in Geology, and a PhD in Science Education. She was a finalist for the 2009 NASA Astronaut Program. She's an analog astronaut and has completed four analog missions, including stints in the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or High Seas, the Mars Desert Research Station, and the Lunare's Moon Habitat. In January of 2020, she went back to High Seas to be a member of the first ever all-female Sensoria mission. Cyan believes that when we solve for space, we also solve issues on Earth. She's passionate about how we can more efficiently feed humans on Earth by engaging in sustainable food practices used in space exploration. She has the TEDx talk called Eat Like a Martian and has published the Meals for Mars cookbook. She has appeared in multiple international science shows, including a current run on the Science Channel show, Strange Evidence. Cyan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Hi, Karen. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. I have to confess, I've always been just a huge fan of the movie The Right Stuff. I mean, it honestly still is one of my favorite movies. And as an anthropologist, I come to it, you know, with that set of glasses on. And I think it really represents so much of what Americans in that time wanted to be, right, um, in their own eyes and in the eyes of the world. And I have to say, doing a little background research for our talk today, which is going to focus on a little known aspect of this time period and the preparation to enter space, focusing on women, namely, shows me how true that really is and, and not really in the best of ways. So um, I'm really excited for you to shed some light on an area of the space race, which I think a lot of Americans don't know as much about. And it would be great if you could kick us off with just a little context for our topic today. What was the space race and why did it happen? So back in, well, I will start with post-World War II, we entered the Cold War or the nuclear race arms, what you would call um, because the Soviet Union and the United States were developing intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, to, as the acronym goes. And the whole idea was that um, the United States, we had bases and stuff that we were already establishing in Europe, 
but Russia didn't. And so Russia was really, I, I should say Soviet Union at that time, the Soviet Union was really interested in intercontinental ballistic missiles. And if you start building missiles, you can start building rockets. And as a result, the Cold War basically escalated into from you know, these ICBM missiles into, well, okay, can we launch into space? And if so, what's, what is that going to look like? And, and America was basically caught off guard when Sputnik was launched in 1957. First satellite in orbit. Um, and it was one of those things where you could actually hear it um, over the radio, it, it had a broadcast. And so you can imagine you go one day from nothing being in space that's human made to now something that's orbiting the earth, but not only orbiting, but from your enemy. So the United States was, we freaked out basically. Yeah, that, that wasn't a great, so, so the broadcast was not happy news, but it was a call to action, it sounds like. It really was, it was a wake up call where at first it was, okay, how did they do this? We need to put up a satellite. And so we did, and then it went to, okay, what's the next step? When they figured out that the Soviet unions were, they were launching animals, they knew that they would be launching humans soon. And so the United States really began to think seriously about putting a human in space, particularly a man in space, <laughs> before the Russians were going to do it. And, and so the, the climate was, we're behind in the space race because of Sputnik. Um, it, we could monitor kind of what was happening and we knew that, they, that the, the Soviet Union was going to do more and bigger things. And it was up to the United States to try and beat them to that. And so it sounds like America was caught on its back foot at the beginning of the space race, if we are gonna say, okay, let's just say it begins with the launch of Sputnik in 1957. Absolutely. So what was America standing like in the world in general at this time? And I, I guess there was some kind of um, reputation perhaps to uphold as well as the, the goal to, to be first over one's enemy. Oh, uh, yes. I mean, World War II really brought the United States into a leading power superiority, uh, you know, the muscle of America when it came to aviation, when it came to um, war power, when you think about the creating the first atomic bomb and all of those things. And it really set the stage as the United States being the leader after post-World War II. And so then you go into this Cold War and this basically arms race with the Soviet Union and the United States believes that they're, you know, they're winning this. And all of a sudden, Russia, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik and you're, everybody was like, whoa, because it's one thing you'd suddenly go to this whole new realm or, or area of space and who's going to control space. And so that becomes a very threatening idea. And, and unfortunately, it was all looked at from a very military kind of advantage, um, nuclear war kind of 
scenario. It wasn't a Star Trek, we can all work together, <laughs> Federation, happy place of space. It was um, who's going to get there first, who's going to dominate, who's going to control. Yeah, well, and that really makes sense. I mean, so close on the heels of World War II, doesn't it? It does. That, that sets us up perfectly, Cyan. Thank you. Um, one more question I want to ask you before we dive into some of the detailed questions. And that is, what, what is an analog astronaut? An analog astronaut is a person who engages in human spaceflight training and research, but on Earth. So it's somebody who's not in a formal astronaut program that's sponsored by NASA or the European Space Agency. They're not an employee astronaut in that sense. Uh, they're usually civilians and they're located all over the world. And so the training is, it sounds as if um, the training is very similar, but when you say all over the world, does that mean that analog astronaut activity takes place individually or are, are, is there some sort of um, remote collaboration that takes place? Good question, Karen. It's actually a combination of both. And so as an individual civilian, I can become an analog astronaut by participating in human spaceflight studies. And so I've lived in moon and Mars simulations for a number of days and months. And so the very first one I did was actually funded by NASA. And so NASA and the European Space Agency, they're really interested in how to learn about human factors for space. If we're going to the moon and to Mars, what can we learn from the psychology or even testing hardware, um, all kinds of things here on earth before we send people up. And since there's a limited number of astronauts, they're, they're basically crowdsourcing with citizen scientists and having them go and do this kind of work. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and so there's actually habitats all over the world where people can go and live in. So I went to Pila, Poland in, and did Lunaris. There's one in Israel. There's pop-up ones that happen. Uh, there, you can think of analogs for space in all kinds of regions all over the world, but also if you're just testing psychology and kind of those human, like you said, factors, you can do, you can look at ships, you can look at submarines, you can look at a stayover in Antarctica as an analog for a moon or Mars mission. And so there's a lot of ways to study um, human factors for space, but on Earth. Yeah, and you know, I that makes so much sense. And in a way it makes me think, um, it's not exactly comparable, but of the way that there is now a platform for anyone who wants to, you know, publish, to be public with their creative output or their political opinions or whatever it is, whether it's on social media or various digital platforms, this idea of this kind of decentralized network, if I'm understanding correctly, of citizen scientists, people who are not you know, necessarily enrolled in very expensive and bureaucratic government programs can, on the one hand, enjoy participating in this kind of really value-added activity, but also add incredible value that can be rolled into more um, you know, sort of structured programs going forward. 
Absolutely. And so a lot of people who want to become an, an NASA astronaut or a European Space Agency astronaut, they will first become an analog astronaut and they'll do things like, um, and sometimes we don't think about these things, but getting your pilot's license. That's a step mm -hmm. to making you more successful candidate for being selected as an actual astronaut, getting scuba certified, living in a Mars or moon simulation and doing research or um, getting training with like G and G flights or parabolic flights, all of those things, if you have them on your resume, then it makes you a lot more, um, let's just say not qualified to some extent, but NASA knows that you are actively trying to do the things that astronauts need to do. I love that. That sounds like a win-win all around. And it actually happens to be a really perfect segue to our topic, which is really at its heart about this question of alternative paths to opportunities, right, that um, are not universally open to all. And with that, I would love to have you take us down, down to the ground to explain to us the day in the life of one of the women, one of the secret leading ladies of the space race who are involved in a program known as Mercury 13. Well, I, I'm gonna start off by saying that in order to become an astronaut, you first have to pass the selection criteria. And the NASA Mercury 7 had to go through a rigorous set of medical and psychological evaluations. And in order let's for- Let's be clear, so the Mercury 7, Yes. Those were men, right? Those were men. And so the, the Mercury program was a program established by NASA to put the first man in space. And so and that was a man, not the man. first human in space. No, the definitely first man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that is the language that they used. Mm -hmm. And so they came up with a set of medical and psychological evaluations to determine who were going to be the lucky seven military test pilots to become the first astronauts in space. They went through this selection criteria and in order for you to become the Mercury 13, you had to go through this same selection criteria. The crazy thing about this is that it was limited to military aviators and women couldn't be military aviators. And so for the Mercury 13 to be selected, they had to be pilots, amazing women aviators. And what happened was if you got the lucky call to come and become one of the Mercury 13, it meant that your day was gonna be filled with crazy medical exams and psychological exams from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep to see if you as a female have the same right stuff as those Mercury 13 men. I mean, Mercury 7 men. <laughs> the same right stuff as the Mercury 7 men. <laughs> well, I have to say a very entertaining aspect of that film for our listeners who have who have seen it, and I expect many have, it's pretty well known, uh, th that was epic. I mean, it, it was mind jogging and, and physically so taxing. 
So the women underwent similar tests, it sounds like. They did. And so luckily, it was a really interesting situation because the person, the medical doctor who oversaw the selection of the men for NASA, the Mercury 7, is the same doctor who said, I want to know if women can pass these oh. same exact tests. And so that's what makes it really interesting. It was the yeah. same medical doctor. And so it was a direct one-to-one -one comparison. So he's like, we gave this to the men, let's do this to the women. And the thing about it was it was secretive. So it was very hush-hush. Nobody, they didn't want people to know. He had already, the, the Mercury 7 men had already been selected, gone through and handed off to NASA. And so he was like, okay, let's see if we can find some women who should be qualified, could be qualified to go into space. And let's talk a little bit more about this gentleman. And I, for one thing, um, what was his name? And what, what prompted him to want to make this comparison? Was it sort of academic curiosity? Or do you think he actually thought there would be a benefit to adding women to the, the first astronaut roster? His name is Dr. William Lovelace. And I think part of it was his own curiosity, but there was also private funding that kind of came in and helped push this a little bit. Oh, uh, okay, private funding for the Mercury 13. For the Mercury 13. Okay. So the Mercury 7 was selected and funded through NASA. And so he was the lead doctor in selecting them. And then they would go off and do their flight training under the Mercury program. And so Dr. Lovelace, while the men were off and going over to NASA, NASA um, training them for their stuff, decided to find some women to go through the same exact training. And, but it's expensive. Oh. You know, these are, cut, yeah. <laughs> we're talking, you know, the latest cutting edge medical technology to probe you inside and out. And so someone had to pay for that. And it just so happened that uh, Jacqueline Cochran or Jackie Cochran, very famous female aviator, um, very successful, very rich, also married um, a very successful businessman. Well, they put up the financing for the Mercury 13. And the reason why is because Jackie Cochran, she held records. Um, she was probably the most accomplished female aviator at that time. Okay. And she wanted to go to space. <laughs> yes, I was just going to say, was she hoping to get a seat? Wow. Absolutely. And the only way she was going to get a seat was to be able to prove that women could do this job, this new job of being an astronaut. And the only way that she was going to be able to do that was to show that women were medically, physically, psychologically, emotionally fit to be able to do this job. Yeah, and by having them go head to head in the exact same tests, supervised by the creator of those tests, but what that both the men and the women were taking, one would think this was a really even playing field that was being set up. You would think so, but it's not. And it wasn't a, it wasn't an even playing field from the beginning. 
when NASA decided on who was going to be an astronaut, they went from this whole idea of, well, could anybody be qualified to specifically making it military aviators, test pilots. Now that eliminated a whole bunch of people who were qualified. And not only one, all women, because there were no women military test pilots, it, you could not be that, but right. also any civilian test pilots were also eliminated. And what's interesting about that is that Neil Armstrong, he was a civilian test pilot. Ah, so he didn't make it. He did not make it until they changed the requirements for men to be civilian because he was military and then went into the civilian and he was actually a NASA test pilot, but could not participate in the program because of the strict requirements. Now, I knew, I knew that Chuck Yeager wasn't able to participate because he didn't have a college degree. That was a requirement as well, wasn't That's it? That's correct. But I didn't realize Neil Armstrong didn't make the cut until obviously later by the time the, was it the Apollo program that he was a part of? That they had changed the, the rules somewhat to allow him? Yep. He got selected in the second class that was taken. And I want to oh, okay. say that that was in 1962. And what's okay. interesting about Jaeger not having the college degree is that, and I didn't know this, is that um, John Glenn did not also have a college degree, but was also- ah, he somehow <laughs> slipped in. He did. He had, he had people who were, he had influence that allowed him to get the rules bent. And so wow. when we talk about requirements, mm and who sets the requirements. Well, those requirements automatically can be exclusionary and, and cut people out. And there's interesting ways to break those rules if you have you know, the right influence. And so when it came to the Mercury 13, they were never going to have the jet test, military jet background, just impossible. Right. Right. So, uh, women absolutely could not. But what they could have done, NASA could have done, is that they could have said, well, these women had, some of them had 10,000 flight hours. I mean, they flew all wow. kinds of things. So they could have said, well, if you have over 5,000 flight hours, we will waive the military jet you know, requirement. Yeah. But they didn't. And so, that, which is unfortunate. Huh, that must have been sort of awkward how they were able to present John Glenn, but uh, you know, interestingly enough, he, he had great public influence um, through his entire life. He, he did. served in um, Congress, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if you can buy your way in as Jackie Cochran hoped to, <laughs> or you can- um, Or use your political influence. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. This is why, it, I, everybody wanted a piece of it. I mean, to be an astronaut um, and what came with that. And so you, you can think about these women aviators that were out there and once word started to spread, even though it was a secret program, the aviation community for women was rather small, especially when you get to the top, uh, top women who were winning the air races and competing with each other and meeting up. 
they started to hear that something was going on and wanted to be a part of that. And um, what was interesting is that Dr. Lovelace first recruited Jerry Cobb, who was an extremely accomplished female aviator. And she went through the selection. Uh, well, I guess she went through the, the requirements first just to see, you know, we'll bring one in, see how she does. <laughs> so Lovelace reached out to Cobb, recruited her, said, hey, I'm kind of thinking about putting together a female core to complete the same trials and training as the male core of the Mercury 7. What do you think? Would you like to help me out with this? Was it sort of that kind of thing? Absolutely. And she oh. said, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you know? who wouldn't? And so she's the only one of the Mercury 13 to complete all three phases of the selection criteria for the astronauts, um, what the men went through. And, but she, when she kind of went through the training, she worked with Dr. Lovelace to recruit other women and to bring them in and go through this. And now these women didn't know who else really was in the program. They would bring them in either one at a time or two at a time because they were trying to keep it oh. on the down low and, oh, okay. <laughs> and get them. And the first thing was all medical. It was probing the body and seeing, you know, could you basically x-rays of everything that of your whole body, um, reflex exams, vertigo exams, cardiac stress exams, hearing exams, eye exams. I mean, you name it, you name it, they looked at right, it. Right, right. And so, so the testing for these women sounds like it was a little bit more solitary. You didn't have this group, this camaraderie that arguably might've developed among the Mercury 7 Absolutely. Men. Yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't that we're going to bring you all in together, you're going to be a cohort, you're going to be able to rely on each other and, and chat and, and build strength and community. It wasn't like that. It was, okay, wow. you know, come in and I'm going to test you and then you're going to go off and then I'm going to bring in somebody else or maybe two people and test huh. them. It wasn't until Eileen Collins launched in the 90s, that was 1995, that she went up as the first female shuttle pilot. Um, she invited the Mercury 13 to her launch, the ones who were still alive. And that's when they really got to meet everybody and be like, hey. Unlike their Mercury 7 male counterparts, who enjoyed the benefits of a training cohort and hugely public support, the Mercury 13 were kept secret isolated from one another and completely unknown to the public. They never even met each other until three decades later on the tarmac of Kennedy Space Center when Eileen Collins, the first female commander of a space shuttle, invited the Mercury 13 to be honored guests at her launch. They weren't a cohort. They weren't brought in together. They were trying to keep this program on the down low and secretive. And so you might be called in as an individual to come down and get this, the medical training that you needed. And so you would go to Dr. Lovelace's um, ranch or, you know, office where he was doing this and you would get your eye exam and your vertical exam and your oh, reflex okay. exam. And I mean, they were probing everything, x-rays of your 
every part of your body, all of these things while you're by yourself. And so you can imagine hmm. having a schedule that says, you know, 8 a.m. breakfast and then, or they probably didn't even allow you to eat. And, but you would go, you would show up and it would be a full day of nothing but medical exams um, that you would be going to. And quite isolating, it sounds. Very isolating. Oh. And you can imagine that, to some extent, very scary, too, because they are exams you've never seen before or done. Oh. Um, something like shooting cold water in your ear to induce vertigo. And you can <laughs> imagine <sounds> it does. <laughs> or, you know, sticking like a hose down your throat to look at your, you know, your stomach acid or um, just probing all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I, I think, again, uh, to, to, to go back to the movie, because it, the right stuff depicts this Mercury 7 selection process is, frankly, a darn good time for these guys. They're, you know, they're form this, this cohort, this mutually supportive cohort. They're, uh, you know, a lot of them, despite being married, are having a little fun on the side. I mean, it's a far cry from what you're talking about for these Mercury 13 women trainees. Yes, and, the, and the, you gotta think about the fact that these women are coming from all across the United States. They have to leave whatever job that they're doing to go and do that. And so unlike the, the men who were brought together, trained together, lived together basically in the same area, they, they, they had funding. So this was their job. Their yeah. Job they were a team. Yes. They were a, a professional team with exactly. all the adulation that comes with that. Exactly. And mm -hmm. these were women who literally had to leave their families to go off and do this medical training and keep it on the down low and wow. then come back and go back to whatever they were doing and then wait and find out what's the next step. Yeah, that is a pretty polar opposite experience. Yes, it is. And it's and that's why these women are so amazing. They just their pilot skills alone and what they were doing in that field, but then to get called and drop everything for the chance to go to space. They wanted to be astronauts. They wanted to contribute and they had the stuff to be successful. And it's, it's really sad to look at the history of what happened with them, to know that they went through all the medical, checked that box and then got denied ever becoming an astronaut. What do we know about how these women stacked up on these tests and the training results as compared to the men who are ultimately selected to go into space as part of the Mercury program? So they had over 20 women come through and go through the selection criteria and only 13 passed. And that's why you have the Mercury 13. So they passed okay. phase one. And the phase one was the physical, um, you know, the physical medical stuff that the men had gone through. And that was an equal one-to-one -one comparison. But then the next step was going to be some of the psychological stuff. And so getting a psych evaluation and going into a sensory deprivation uh, pool 
And that's where you- That's the part that sounds really awful to me, even worse than the physical stuff. Really? Oh, no. I got a a confession because I do, have you heard about the floats that you can do in salt water? They're like salt water baths that you go and you float. Are they enclosed? They're enclosed, yes. That sounds horrible, I'm claustrophobic. So, um, but basically you can imagine a big tub where you lay and you have a little flotation device that helps keep you up and you sit there, but the temperature is at a water, the water temperature is close to your body temperature. So it, what it does is gives you this sense of not feeling the water. And you basically have to stay there for as long as you can. We're talking hours and hours and hours to see how long you can handle that. And so... Do they count minutes? (laughs) I think if I made it a couple of minutes, I would feel like I had won the day. Uh, but for them, the, the women at that time, this was new, crazy things. I mean, I would have been like, you want me to do what? <laughs> you want me, wait, wait. Uh, okay. <laughs> but you did it because you wanted sure. to be an astronaut. Uh, so the women did that. But the big one was being able to fly a jet. And so the women... Is that... Okay, so... The jet flight, what phase of the testing did that part come in? That was going to be phase three. And so what was happening is that the women went through phase one and 13 successfully did it. And then phase two was going to be more psychological kind of exams. And then phase three was to bring them together, actually together to do flight training in Pensacola with military jets because oh, wow. you just okay. ha- didn't have access to military jets unless you were super rich like Jackie Cochran who um who had done a lot of military jet training and proved that women could fly military jets and then the word is out and it gets squashed and then that is it um so they, they went through phase 1 phase 2 many of them yes and then it's showtime and they're told thanks but no thanks right nasa gets word and that's it it's not happening and it gets canceled they had tickets to go to florida to pensacola to do this and so it was booked and they were excited and then it was put to an end and it was really sad because the women did a couple of the women did go on to try to lobby congress to have the right to be able to try to be an astronaut just as the men. So equal rights. And you gotta keep in mind that this is the early 60s. And so civil rights movement and all of the things that are starting to heat up in the country. Well, this was a couple of years before that um, where they're in Congress lobbying for the right to be astronauts. And did they have any data to show? Is there any record of how the women's test results compared to the men's test results? Yes, and that's what the Mercury 13 are. They are the 13 women who actually fit the qualifications that the men fit. They passed, and that meant that they were at equal standing to what the men had done, or even better. Wow. 
And do you think that the women participating in the Mercury 13 program expected to have a fair shot at actually making it into space? I mean, no doubt the men assumed that they had as good a chance of the as the guy next to him, provided they performed. I think that the women truly thought that they were going to be able to show that they had the right stuff and were going to be able to go to space. Even up until going to Congress and lobbying, I think that they really thought that they would be able to prove their case. And then there was a couple of things that happened that unfortunately tipped it against them. Uh, the first is that, well, interesting enough, two of the Mercury astronauts testified and John Glenn was one of them. And he was like, no. <laughs> he basically said, you know, uh, if women could do this, they would be doing it. And, and the social norm is for men to be fighting the wars and flying the jets and the women are supposed to be doing other womenly things. That's in a nutshell what he was saying. And, and then Jackie Cochran, who was the backer and the supporter of the program and had a long history with the military and um, the women's, the WASP, the women's uh, um, auxiliary, I wanna say, I'm trying to remember what WASP stands for, but it's the transport of, of planes during World War II. She set that up. So she had a lot of clout, a lot of political backing, and she testified at Congress that well, maybe it's not time for women to be able to do this. And which was a big disappointment to the Mercury 13 and the women who were um, trying to do this. Did you think there was any sour grapes there? I think there was a little. She wanted to go to space. She paid for them to go through the training and she was unfortunately too old. She would have been a fantastic yeah, astronaut. Yeah, I think I she read was, that. Yeah. She just aged out, and, and which is unfortunate um, because the, the requirements were so strict because nobody had ever gone to space before. So you had yeah. to be in the best shape. You couldn't have anything wrong. And, and just with age, she just didn't fit the criteria. And unfortunately, I think that that, there was a little bit at play there where, and I think there's also because of her contacts with the military and her relationships, I think that she thought that the time for women would come sooner than it did, but she didn't lobby for them at that moment. And that pushed it back decades. Oh, I can only imagine how damning it would be when one of the backers of this training program actually didn't go to bat for them when the chance came. That's pretty stunning. Yes, it's unfortunate. And, and, and NASA didn't want it. The astronauts, uh, males didn't want it. Congress didn't want it. And even up into the White House where um, Johnson, vice president, uh, he said, put an end to it. <laughs> and that doesn't that surprise it. me. From what I know about <laughs> Lyndon Johnson, I'm going to say. Yes. And so it was all, it was all male. And the women, unfortunately, had to, they had to go home and pick up their lives and figure out what was next because it wasn't going to be an astronaut. Wow. 
13 women in the secret Mercury training program met or surpassed the rigorous physical and psychological criteria NASA set for those selected to be the first Americans in space. Only seven men passed. And yet, what do you know? All of them flew. You do the math. Could you tell us what became of any any one particular woman in this Mercury 13 cohort? You know, all of these women were amazing. They, they were trailblazers ahead of their time to some extent. I, I like to look at Wally Funk because she was the youngest selected. She was 23 years old when she went through, but she was early on just a spitfire. I mean, <laughs> she went to college at 16. Um, she was a professional aviator by 20. And so oh, wow. she had all of these flight hours. I mean, she was born to fly. And, and so you can imagine you're 23 years old, you want to be an astronaut, and then suddenly you're not going to be. Well, she went on to become continued in flying she was an faa flight instructor and field examiner um, and she was the first uh, ntsb which is the national transportation safety board air safety investigator and so you think oh. about the people who go in so she was the first female to do that and, cool. and she's alive today and as a role model for women aviators around the world good for her yeah, it's just a really great story. And then if you pick up Jerry Cobb, who, again, was uh, probably the next top aviator after Jackie Cochran at that time, um, she came from a military family growing up. Her father was a pilot. Um, she was flying by the time she was 16. She became a certified pilot by 17 and then, you know, got into the Mercury program. And then after that happened, she ended up going to South America and flying humanitarian flights. Oh, wow. Yes, like to indigenous populations, kind of opening up new airways and just incredible work. And it was so incredible that she was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for what she did. That's amazing. I know. And so she was the only one of the Mercury 13 that went through all the phases of the selection process. So very qualified. And then when John Glenn did his return to space flight with a space shuttle as an older person. So now oh, right. that was in the late nineties, right? I remember that. Well, she, well, Jerry Cobb lobbied to send a woman also her because she was also in her I guess she would have been in her 70s and so she's like well if you're gonna send him this is your chance to send me too yeah get a man and a woman who are in the aging effects in space and you know what they said no I yeah I was gonna say I don't remember reading about that in any headlines and what was their justification they just wanted a man and so it was another missed opportunity to just say, Huge yes, missed opportunity to, <laughs> to, to write a, a, a wrong from decades before. Um, and in fact, that, that really um, raises the question of why it took the United States so long to send a woman, period, into space. I mean, Russia 
sent a woman into space in the 1960s. Isn't, isn't that correct? That is correct. And so you can imagine that all of this is playing out in 61, 62 with the Mercury 13, and then 63, Valentina Tereshkova is launched into space. She's the third person that- The, the third person ever. Yeah, well, no, because just from the Russian side, because at that no, time- No, no, but the third person the Russians sent was a woman? Yes, yes. And it, it took America decades. Well. Well, was that also broadcast in one of those cut-in radio news flashes that, that oh, yeah. stopped the world? <laughs> she, became, she became an instant celebrity, um, famous, and you know, um, even to this day. In fact, June 16th is Valentina's Day. Um, the first female in space was June 16th, 1963. Wow. And That's nearly 60 years ago. The thing about it is that the United States had the women to be able to do that. And they could have been first. What, what was that about? What, what caused the huge delay? Well, it, unfortunately, it was sexism. I mean, it was women belong here and men belong over there doing those things um, and just did not see a place for women in space. We did not until 20 years later. Sally Ride went up as the first American female astronaut June 18th, 1983, almost 20 years to the day. How did that come about? You know, um, Sally Ride is actually really interesting because she was selected in, I want to say 1978. Um, and the reason why she, NASA changed its criteria. And you got to picture this, that um, the shuttle was going to be coming online and they knew that they had the ability to, you know, bring a lot more Americans up into space. And so in 1978, NASA took a huge astronaut class. And Sally Ride, along with, I want to say, four other females. Um, so that I think there was five total. Sorry, I'm blanking on that. But um, they were selected along with three African-American males. And was that also a first? I, I was actually wondering, and you're talking about all of this is so male in NASA up until this point, and I wondered how white it was. Oh, yeah. It, it was up until that point, it was very, it was all male and all white, except for there was one um, black male test pilot who was selected before that, but unfortunately was tragically killed in a plane crash oh. um, before he could officially become an astronaut. Oh. And so, so that class was really one where they diversified and they changed the criteria because they, they added a new, character, uh, new category of mission specialist. And so Sally okay. Ride is basically a physicist, uh, an astrophysicist. And so she was one of the ones selected that in that class. And she ended up going into space in 1980. What did I say? It was 83, 1983, June 18th, 1983. So this class of 78 was really groundbreaking for NASA, it sounds like. They diversified in terms of gender and in terms of race and also in terms of, we'll call it 
academic and vocational preparation to go to space. Absolutely. Because now you're going with the shuttle where you're going to be able to bring payloads with you. Satellite technicians, I mean, the mission specialists, they had people the 90s. So Sally Ride actually went up in 83. But you don't really get the diversity of not only women, but um, people of color into space until the 90s. The 90s was this incredible explosion of women flying all the time and people of color going up. And so May Jameson went up in, I want to say, when did May go? Um, she went up in 1992 as the first African-American female to go mm-hmm. into space. And you even okay. had college professors. If you had a, a payload that was going up into space, you could lobby to be a mission specialist. And, and that's why it, the Big Bang Theory show was so funny because <laughs> uh, you know, became an astronaut because he had you know, a payload that come, could go up. And so it really switched the criteria of who had the right stuff. And again, diversified. The shuttle diversified what it meant to be an astronaut and who could become an astronaut. And is that because not everybody on board was required to be able to fly the thing? That's that's exactly right. You had the pilot and the commander, which are the two front seats, and those still were reserved for you know, the military aviator box, um, test pilot. And then you had all these other seats for mission specialist. And if you're going to fly mission specialists that don't need to be a pilot, then you can bring a physicist or um, somebody who's more specialized. So in a way, really, it's also discouraging in some respect not to ignore the silver lining, but it took a a technological advance in the systems of these vehicles that were being used to take astronauts up into space and not really a social shift to recognize the contribution that a more diverse community of astronauts could make to the space program. Right. It really, if you look at it that way, you can say that it was um, a convenience made available by the technology where we're using to launch people into space. Going to the shuttle meant more people, a lot, and more people meant more access, basically. And so- However you get there, it's a good thing, but it is truly stunning. But the implications, we're still feeling the implications now. If you watch the Launch America, and so SpaceX just sent two, Americans from U.S. soil up to the International Space Station, SpaceX commercial rocket. If you watch that launch, what did you notice? All white male again. Yeah, Cyan, and that launch was so public. And so this this really leads me to the question of what's the media's role in shaping the gender gap in the sciences generally. Let's even take it beyond space travel. I I know that you're a passionate science educator. Well, if we want change, then we've got to put women and people of color out in front of the public. We need them as role models. You know, when we say, well, name a, if we go to an average person on the street and we say, well, name a 
female science communicator. And you're like, well, what do you mean? They'll say, and I'm someone like <sighs> Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye the science guy. And they're like, oh, I love those people. I know them. Uh, name a female one. Hmm. And you're gonna Let get crickets. Crickets, <laughs> I was just gonna say crickets. <laughs> and <sighs> that's sad. So where is the female version of that? So those, that's what we need. We need to have the media really kind of share these stories and elevate um, women and women in science and STEM and just getting them to be role models um, for future generations and, and people of color too. And we're seeing when I go to conferences and go it, and I look at who the speakers are and if it's not diverse, I don't go. That's just my way of saying, until you figure out, get your act together, I'm not going to go and participate in this because this day and age, there are Black in STEM, there are women in STEM, there are all of these people out there. And when I hear them saying, oh, I can't, couldn't find anybody, or asking me, you know, do I know anybody? I'm like, they're out there, just the hashtag. Like, Black in nature, black in STEM, of anything you've learned in this last month, <laughs> those three hashtags, black in STEM, black in nature, you know, black PhD, we're out there. Being able to share our stories and giving you reaching out to me and giving me this platform and saying, well, hey, what is an analog astronaut? You're doing what? That's so cool. Um, I think that that's how we make change. Everybody out there listening. Please share this episode. It's really important now more than ever. Well, you know, we're in that next phase of making space exciting again with the commercial launch and what's coming down the pipeline. The, you know, NASA's pledged to put a, the first female on the moon. Um, you know, I, I think it's funny because a lot of times they say, we're going to put the first female and the next man on the moon. I'm like, can't it just be two females? <laughs> let's just cut the chase. But, it's sort of funny. And the next man. I know. I'm like, no. Well, at least he doesn't get top billing for once, I am. Oh, but you could easily just put two women, make one of them a woman of color. Or if it's a man, make it a, a you know, a man of color. <laughs> like, let's diversify. You got a twofer right there. So where does Cyan think we're headed with the future of space travel? All our past missteps considered. You think about settling on the moon or settling Mars and what that means for access to space. And that gets me excited. But not only that, the idea of suborbital flights where you know Virgin Galactic is looking at that where you go up, you, you go into weightlessness for a few minutes and you come back down. And they had the first female that they put up, Beth Moses went up and did that um, as a civilian. She's a commercial astronaut. And so, I, I mean, she's the, I should say she's amazing. She is the astronaut trainer for Virgin Galactic. And oh, so okay. all of the girls out there were like, wait, that's a job, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's this great. Is, this is why representation matters, right? And then they're like, whoa, she just became the first commercial female commercial scientists you know that went up on a non-nasa 
aircraft and became an astronaut. And you're like, oh, that's so cool. And so these are the things that I think are ways in which we um, bring women to the forefront and really get the next generation excited about space. Well, and as one who's trained to become an astronaut yourself, and one who came so close to actually making it into space in 2009, am I correct? That, that is correct. a finalist in, in the NASA astronaut program. That's phenomenal. Congratulations on that accomplishment. Thank you. It came as a surprise. <laughs> oh, well, I, I don't know. It sounds like you've made all the opportunities that have come your way, Cyan, um, which is a lesson that all of us can learn from. But Yeah, you know, the thing about that is that I could have easily talked myself out of applying. Um, I was 39 years old, community college professor, went, didn't go to an Ivy League school and stuff. So one, I was surprised when somebody sent me the thing saying, hey, NASA's looking for astronauts, you should apply. Because they saw the things that I was doing and they said, oh man, you'd make an awesome astronaut. Um, because I had my pilot's license, I was scuba certified, I was traveling and teaching around the world and doing these, yeah. these things. and. I got that and I didn't even know how they selected astronauts and I opened it up and I was like, whoa, I'm actually qualified. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'll, I'll put in, why not? And I submitted and then it just went from me being, you know, an applicant to being highly qualified to first round interviews. And I'll have to say that I went down um, for the first round interviews, but then for the final interviews, when you become a finalist, it's a full week at Johnson Space Center and they probe every oh. part of you it's all <laughs> medical <laughs> and so oh, wow. I can, <laughs> yeah i can relate a little bit to what they went through the mercury 13 um it, not quite as crazy as what they did i think because nobody shot cold water in my ear but medical i mean everything was looked at and then you go and you wait for this yes, no phone call. I mean, it's a yes, no. Yes, you're going to be an astronaut or no, apply again. And astronaut Sunita Williams called me. So if you're going to get a no. It might as well be from a cool astronaut. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think this is one of those cases where a no meant you were still pretty damn awesome. So there you go. Well, you know, and the thing about it is that I went on to become an analog astronaut. And so there are ways in which to still contribute and have space in your life. Um, and I'm, I'm very hopeful about the commercial astronaut avenue and, and potentially being able to go to space that way. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that. Are you looking into that at all? Well, right now it's still a partnership with NASA and NASA astronauts, but um, Virgin Galactic is basically pay. You, if you got enough money, you can buy a seat. And so I, I might start a, you know, a uh, GoFundMe. Send I was going to say, I'd support you. <laughs> yeah. So anybody out there that has money that's listening to this, eh, send side to space. Um, and, but as, you know, 10 years from now, we have no idea what the landscape is going to look like for space exploration. And there might be so many opportunities. I'm hoping for so many opportunities that uh, I can go. As an analog astronaut and one who, as we know, got so close to actually going into space already, you know, what, what kind of hope does all of this 
light in you? I mean, are you on balance hopeful for the future for women like yourself? Yes, I, I'm very optimistic. Um, I'm optimistic by nature, but I also like to think that every step forward, we make a little bit of progress. And so NASA, not this past astronaut selection class, but the one before was 50-50. They took eight people, oh. four were men, four were women. Um, in the last astronaut class, I think there were nine. It was an odd number or something, but it was less women than men. But this one coming up, they're, they're going to announce in 2021 who they are. It might be the first time where they take more women than men. I will say that um, NASA so far has not done a very good job of flying their black female astronauts. There have been six selected in all of history, six black female astronauts, and only three have made it to space. So they're at a 50% success rate right now. So I would like to see them improve that, those numbers. And is that a, a different proportion from what we see, for example, in a white female astronaut cohort? Yes. 65, oh. there are 65 women have flown to space so far. 10 women who have not flown at a U.S., who were selected in the U.S. program that haven't gone to space. Now, out of those 10, one of them passed away. She, she died in, a, um, in, in an air crash, I believe. Uh, and the ones that, one is retired, she's African-American, never flew to space. And then, uh, so you take those out, there's eight. So everybody else has been recently selected. We're talking 2017 okay. class, you know, the last class, uh, the last two classes. And so in my, when I was, went through the process in 2009, there was speculation that they were going to take a black female and they did. And so it kind of came down to a 50-50 and Jeanette Epson oh. was selected. And she's amazing, but she hasn't flown yet. She okay. was scheduled to fly in um, 2018 and she was in Russia waiting to fly and NASA pulled her and replaced her with her <gasps> backup and nobody knows why. Oh. So two black females right there that, you know, the, the first one, Yvonne Cagle, I've met her. She's amazing. She never went to space. And then Jeanette Epps is still waiting. And then another black female was taken in the last astronaut selection class. And she's, she, her name is Jess, Jessica Watkins. She's amazing. And she's a geologist. And she might just be sent to the moon on Mars. Oh, let's hope so. And it sounds like, as is the case in um, our society at large right now, there is a lot of attention needed, more attention and better efforts to level the playing ground for everybody, whether Absolutely. they're female, male, white, brown, black, whatever. Um, yeah, so... It's a systemic issue. I guess we shouldn't really be surprised, but uh, I want to thank you so much for um, discussing these really important issues about um, uh, really about access at the fundamental end of the day into some of the most important and inspiring programs that 
our nation is participating in. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. It is about access and representation and um, we're getting better, but we still have ways to go. It's just been great chatting with you about this because I think it is an, an important subject. When we talk about what it means to be an astronaut and how awe-inspiring that is, and, and then we look at the history of who's had access to this. Um, when we say space is for everyone, clearly it hasn't been for everyone. And the goal is to really make that space um, for all of humanity and that about access. Amen, I couldn't have put it better. The moon landing in 1969 no doubt sparked the imaginations of countless young people in the United States and the world at large. But then, as now, the narratives we tell our youth are crafted unequally. Boys are still promised the moon, while girls are taught to expect less for themselves. If they do want more, women have to figure out how to navigate a system in which so many decks are still stacked against them. The story of the Mercury 13 is a timeless cautionary tale about the pivotal role of access in shaping our work and our lives. The superstars of the Mercury 13 program show us that women of course are as capable as men. They're scientists, explorers, and leaders, and it's time we changed the script on women in the sciences for good. It's also time that institutions, looking at you, NASA, become fully inclusive of people of color. No one should be denied the opportunity to study STEM and to practice the sciences and achieve whatever personal bests they've got up their sleeves. Just like no young girl should ever have to feel the awe of watching a human walk on the moon for the first time without the social framework to imagine herself exploring new worlds of her own someday. If you want to learn more about today's guest, follow her at Dr. Cyan Proctor on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Her out-of-this-world cookbook, Meals for Mars, can be found at mealsformars.com. Cyan's TEDx talk called Eat Like a Martian is on YouTube. And to learn more about Analog Astronauts, check out analogastronauts.com. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.